Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. I think that this is an area where people can very much improve the quality of their lives with the help of another person. And it, it really leads to a feeling of success in a broader way. And a few months ago on Eyes on Success, we talked about how you can stay in good physical shape. This week, we turn the tables a bit based on some input from our listeners and questions from our listeners, and we'll be talking about mental health, especially as to how mental health therapy can be impacted by having a visual impairment. Finding the right therapist to help deal with a mental health issue is crucial to having a successful outcome. We'll speak with Robert DeYoung, a practicing psychoanalyst who is himself blind, about special concerns faced by making this choice when one is blind and how blindness may affect the interaction between patient and therapist. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Robert DeYoung. Have compassion for oneself. And compassion includes doing nice things for oneself, but also recognizing one's limits and being able to tolerate disappointment or hardship as well as being kind to oneself. So in other words, no matter what the difficulty, don't be too hard on yourself there are solutions for many problems that we come up against. There are solutions and there are others who can help you bear the difficulty. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask for help when we need it. Indeed. The following is a public service announcement from Jonathan Mosen. On April the 16th at 2 p.m. North American Eastern Time, blind musicians from across the globe are getting together for an online benefit concert for Ukraine. It's called We're With You, and all money raised goes to the World Blind Union's Unity Fund for Ukraine. To learn more, including how to listen and how to perform at We're With You, visit mushroomfm.com slash with you. That's mushroomfm.com slash with you. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by APHConnectCenter.org, empowering people toward independence and success by providing blogs, information, and resources for individuals of all ages who are blind or visually impaired. Information and referral line are at 1-800-232-5463. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Robert. Robert, you've been on the show before, but for anybody who may have missed that episode, can you introduce yourself? Yes, hi. I'm Robert D. Young. I'm a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, uh, which means that I went through all the training to become a psychologist uh, and practice for a while, and then in additional training to become 
uh, psychoanalyst. Now, the last time you were on the show, we were talking about how you, as a blind person, got your training and did your practice. But this time we'll be talking about issues that might arise for a blind person as a patient of a psychoanalyst. Yes, and uh, it's a very broad topic uh, to cover, but we'll do our best. Most of our listeners are blind or visually impaired. Do you have a visual impairment yourself? Yes, I'm totally blind. I was born with retinoblastoma, so I lost my left eye when I was an infant and my right eye when I was approximately eight years old. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the special considerations involved in managing your mental health if you also have a visual impairment. Robert, getting help in a therapeutic setting is a very big topic. So as an expert, where do you think is a good point to start this discussion? One question I think we're discussing is mental health issues versus uh, a sense of well-being, right? When we think about mental health, it's a very, very broad topic. Lots of things come under that realm, and there are many ways to approach a topic like that. Even the word therapy has a lot of different meanings to it. For example, somebody might say gardening or hiking is my therapy. And I think when they say that, what they mean is it gives them a sense of well-being and can help reduce tension and what we call stress. And there's a lot of uh, things that can be very helpful in that category. Religious practices, meditation, yoga, psychotherapy, uh, you know, exercise, lots of things can help in that sense of well-being and uh, who, and even, you know, who one is in the world. Mental health can also move into areas of different levels of difficulty from mild to moderate to severe. And I think that's where professionals can play it even a bigger role. You've had experience along this whole spectrum as a visually impaired participant in the treatment role. What role do you think somebody's visual impairment or blindness might play in causing a mental health problem? I think with very few exceptions, a visual impairment would actually cause a mental health problem, but it can often play a role in how one responds to difficulties and also how others around them respond to the difficulties. And then it becomes the interplay between those responses and whatever the mental health issue is at the time. One facet of having a visual impairment is that you can't drive yourself someplace. And in our culture, people are sometimes embarrassed that they need to seek 
treatment or help from a mental health professional. Do you think that this need for somebody else to participate in the transportation could be somewhat of an impediment to blind people seeking help? Unfortunately, you raised the point that there tends to be a stigma in our society about seeking mental health help, and that certainly varies by location and family background and culture, but it does not have to be somebody else's business where you're going and what you're doing unless you want to tell them. Along with there being a wide variety of providers of mental health services, there are a wide variety of settings. Uh, There can be hospitals, outpatient clinics, of a variety. Um, For example, there's an outpatient clinic here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with which I'm familiar, which is a house on a street corner. Nobody needs to know what that, you know, why you're going in that house. It's a house. Um, there are also people in private practice who are in regular office buildings. So there are lots of ways. And so if one wants to let others know, that's fine. But it's, it's not always mandatory. Mm-hmm. Has it become reasonably common for people to do telehealth visits with mental health practitioners? Yeah, definitely during COVID. I myself have been working only remotely for the past two years. And most of my colleagues, that's true as well. I was going to say, I've been hearing lots of public service announcements for online help through a variety of apps on your smart devices, for example. Is that something worth considering? I am skeptical. I don't know a lot about that area. I think the mindfulness and meditation kind of apps, sure, that's fine. But if you're really looking for making changes or addressing a a significant mental health issue, I'm very doubtful about that. So proceed with caution and keep your eyes open. Maybe do a little bit of research ahead of time. Research and consult with other people you know and... um, physicians, you know, family physician or primary care physician. Yeah. And do research, vet the uh, app and the program. So I assume you get a lot of referrals from primary care physicians? I get some. For me personally, the majority of my referrals actually come from a website called Psychology Today. And we can talk more about that in a little bit. But That's where a lot of uh, mental health practitioners, including clinics, put a notice out of what they have to offer, and people can search that site in a whole variety of ways for what they're looking for. So do you think there are special considerations if a visually impaired person is looking for a practitioner, finding some sort of therapist? So I think one of the things that keeps coming up over and over in the research is the match between the therapist and the uh, patient client is the most important part of having a positive outcome. 
um, more so than particular approach, uh, other variables. And so, yes, I think finding a good match is not easy. It, it can take work sometimes, but it's worth it. I think there are several ways of going about that. Um, again, talking to others. And is there something particular about one's uh, visual impairment and that match? What I would say is being able to feel like that person is taking your visual impairment at an appropriate level of importance. If it's a central issue for you, you want them to regard it that way. If it's part of who you are and the bigger issue is something else, you want them to regard it that way. Once you get going and they learn something and realize, hey, there's something you're overlooking, okay, well, that's something more to discuss. You know, I think, as you point out, communication between the therapist and the patient is so important, as it is with many other professionals. And I think, in some sense, people shouldn't be afraid if they do find some therapist and they're not happy to, in some sense, kind of fire them and move on to the next one with whom you might have a better rapport. I mean, I'm not shy about doing that with physicians, my internist. If we don't get along, even if they're a good internist, you know, it's a, it's a team effort to solve problems, and you have to have a good rapport with them. So I think particularly being blind, as you point out, maybe you need to think a little bit harder about how that interaction goes and how they assess your blindness. Yes, and I totally agree with what you just said. One of the things I will add is, and I try to encourage this to all the people I, I talk to who are seeking uh, a therapist, is if there's something that doesn't seem to work or rubs you in the wrong way, try bringing it up with them and then see what happens. Because as you say, it's communication, it's teamwork, it's both sides participating. And yeah, if the person can't hear what is being talked about, okay, fire them, move on. But if you bring it up and they seem to understand your point of view, and you can understand where they're coming from, now there's some movement. And I guess particularly when something like blindness is involved, there can be a little balancing act that needs to go on. We had some listener approach us with the question that, you know, she came in with a problem that wasn't necessarily blindness related, but as you said in the beginning, sometimes blindness does have an impact on the issue. And this listener felt that the therapist all of a sudden felt that the blindness was the problem and started focusing on that as being the issue. And I think our listener found that to be very frustrating and unproductive. How do you think people should handle stuff like that? Just to bring up the question and be very forthright about it, as you said? Or yes. is there something else that they can do? As forthright as possible, I think. Yeah. And um, that's true for any issue. And uh, it's particularly true for sensitive issues. And sometimes it can take a while in one's treatment to be able to say, you know, so many months ago you said, and I'm still kind of burning inside about that. And when I hear somebody say that, and that certainly has happened with me multiple times, and I say, I want to hear more. And if 
the therapist says, oh, that's done and over with. Okay, that's not such a good response. So in other words, if you have a good therapist, they will confront this issue, put it on the table, and be very open about it until the issue is resolved. Yes. You can't just throw it under the rug. No, it doesn't work. We've been talking about feeling comfortable or not so comfortable with your therapist. As an extreme of that, somebody might feel downright unsafe. Do you think there are particular safety issues to consider? So I think there are, at least in the beginning, in the sense of you want to be oriented to where you are. Often when we go to buildings we're not familiar with, where, you know, sighted guide or something like that. At the very least, you want to know where you are in the room, what the person you're talking to, uh, where the door is, where a, a bathroom is, things like that. Just so you can feel comfortable and say, I know where I am. The other thing is if you seek service in a outpatient clinic or in a private practice, um, you want to know about what the after-hours provisions are. If something comes up, some kind of emotional emergency, what do you do? Who do you contact? I mean, those are just things that you just want to know, and I don't know that that's particularly different for a person who's blind, but it may be posted on a wall somewhere and you don't see it. So you just want to make sure you know those things. Are there circumstances in which you might want to seek a provider who specializes in working with people with visual impairments? So one of the things that I didn't mention in the beginning, I'm a person who is blind, I'm a practitioner, but I don't have a specialization in working with the blind population or the visually impaired population. So there are some things that I definitely do not know, but... um, some areas that I thought of as I prepared for talking with you, Nancy, you and Pete today, is potentially non-24 sleep disorder. I don't know a lot about that area. It hasn't affected my life personally, but I know it affects a lot of blind people. Um, And I know that sleep disorders can impact um, mental health. So if that is the case for someone, that you may or may want to uh, consult somebody who has more of a specialization. Another area is if there's any sort of secondary issue that might need to be evaluated, Um, cognitive functioning, neural functioning. Yeah, Rorschach tests aren't going to work very well if you can't see the ink blots. No, Rorschach tests aren't going to work very well. And even all, most of the standardized test materials are not made in a form, you know, that the standard practitioner uses will work for a blind or uh, vision-impaired person. So it might need a specialist for, for something like that. IQ testing or learning disability, cognitive deficits, executive functioning. Um, neuropsychological testing, all of those kind of things. We talked a lot about how to find a therapist, how to interact with a therapist. What are some resources where people can find the appropriate resource that'll fit their needs? So I mentioned the Psychology Today website. 
the other thing I want to mention about that website is um, there are many articles on mental health topics posted on that website where one can educate themselves more. And I've had many of my patients read things like that and they come and they ask me and then we have a more, you know, a productive discussion about how does this apply to me or, or not apply to me. The other thing I want to mention in this area is if one is seeking an individual therapist, you start making these phone calls, trying to find out, hey, do you have availability? Don't be afraid to ask, do you know somebody else? You know, the cliche is we go into this field to help, and it's really true. And I, I know, I've done it myself, I've helped people connect when I don't have what that person is looking for, or I don't have availability. My wife is also a clinical psychologist. She's really gone out of her way to help people who she can't see herself. Um, people won't do that. I wish I had a magic uh, statement to say how to find them, but there are people who make it their business to just help connect people. That's uh, one important thing. Other resources you want to check um, if they're looking for a specialist, to work with blind people. Uh, I think the national organizations are for the blind. I think the major groups like uh, American Foundation for the Blind and uh, American Printing House for the Blind may have resources. I, I'm not certain about that. Um, I would also check with the local Center for Independent Living. They often have a list of resources as well. If someone, you know, happens to be near a college or university, there are often training clinics, which uh, people say, oh, I don't want to see a trainee. There can be a double advantage there. One is uh, it can often be lower cost. But another advantage is these people are supervised, and I'm now in the role of supervisor, now, three people thinking about one person's issues, the patient, the therapist, and the supervisor. And a training therapist often has more time to spend that time in the session to think about what is going on for this person. How can I help them? Well, you know, it's interesting, as you say, rather than just connecting with one therapist and saying, okay, I'm going to go with that one. If you ask them and ask people within the professional community, they're connected to each other. They know each other's skills. They know each other often personally, whereas if you're outside the system, you just don't. Yes. So it really pays to inquire and do a little homework before you settle on the therapist that you think will work well with you. Yes. And of course, if you're in a crisis situation and you don't feel like you have a few weeks to find the perfect therapist, there are resources for people in a crisis as well. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Nancy. Um, certainly, the local emergency room can be a, a resource and they will connect people to outside resources. Uh, you know, and if there's some kind of crisis that needs to include a hospitalization, well, that can happen too. There's also the suicide prevention hotline. And um, I know there is a, a chat app for that. 
time panic, someone with whom I'm working with take advantage of it, and it was quite helpful. I don't know about the accessibility of that app. But if somebody's really feeling like they're going to harm themselves or someone else, the best thing is to get to the local emergency room or call 911. Well, Robert, I want to thank you on behalf of all our listeners for your advice and list of resources. And this is a very big topic, as you say, but at least your thoughts should help people get going in the right direction. Thank you, Pete. I think that this is an area where people can very much improve the quality of their lives with the help of another person. And it really leads to a feeling of success in a broader way, as well as maybe, you know, in a specific topic, depending on if that's what someone wants. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, we talked about other resources in the focus segment, but now we'll cover how to contact our guest, Robert DeYoung, if you have any further questions for him. Robert, if people had questions for you, how would they be able to contact you? The best way would be contacting me through my email. My email address is my last name, first initial, B like Delta, E like Echo, Y O U N G R at umich, U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. And is there a phone number where people can reach you? People can call me at my work phone, which is area code 734-223-8834. If people did want to work with you, is that something that you occasionally do remotely? I do work remotely. There may be issues of cross-state licensure we might want to consider. But the other issue is at the moment I don't have availability, but that can change from time to time. And if you're looking for any of that contact information, you can find it in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. We also want to thank all of the listeners who submitted questions due to an inquiry we made on our announcements list to Robert prior to the show. We collected a lot of that input and had Robert think about it and organize the show ahead of time, so we tried to put it all in one place. And Robert has also kindly joined our discussion forum and if you would like to join that discussion forum to discuss this or other topics on the forum with Robert and connect with other listeners of the show, you can do that by sending an email to EOS underscore discuss, followed by the plus sign, followed by the word subscribe at googlegroups.com. That's EOS underscore discuss plus subscribe at googlegroups.com. And that can be kind of a fun way of interacting with other listeners to discuss topics that you've heard on the show. 
That's it for show number 2215. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be speaking with Virginia Jacko, president and CEO of the Miami Lighthouse for the Blind. In that role, she is committed to ensuring that the blind and visually impaired have equitable access to education, blindness prevention programs, and vision rehabilitation training. She is a vocal advocate for all of this, and we will talk with her about her advocacy work and some highlights of her career. And if you want to hear how even a single person can enhance accessibility and access to all kinds of tools and resources, you'll want to catch that show next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.